The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my partner, Chen Lin, uh, who just returned from vacation, uh, publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, and that is a newsletter you need to put your name on a waiting list for at miningstocks.com. You need to sign up there, put your name on a waiting list, and then depending on how many vacancies there are, Chen will accept new subscribers at the start of the next quarter. So uh, at the beginning of October, the first uh, uh, couple of weeks of October, new subscribers will be accepted for what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. You can, however, buy my newsletter, a subscription to my newsletter, anytime at miningstocks.com. Or you can go to our, uh, call our office directly at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 through the uh, normal working hours here in New York. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I would also like to invite you to keep those questions and comments coming to questions for taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And you can also follow uh, what I'm doing uh, at jtaylormedia.com. Also uh, on Twitter under the jtaylormedia uh, handle. I want to thank our sponsors also for making the show uh, economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Caden Resources, Ganey Capital, and Cornerstone Capital uh, Corp., which comes on as a sponsor today. Caden is uh, certainly one of the best performing gold stocks this year. It's, it's up from around a dollar at the start of the year to $2.56 earlier today. Uh, we were going to have uh, Ivan Bebek, the CEO of Caden, on our show today, but he asked to come on in a couple of weeks from now when he expects to have some more uh, news to report. I'm expecting he'll have some drill results that uh, could help confirm the very good exploration results they've had thus far uh, in proving up what looks like it could be a multi-million ounce open pit uh, project in Mexico. And uh, certainly Caden, I tell you, personally is my second largest holding in my retirement account uh, next to Novo Gold. I'd say Novo Gold in some ways uh, is an extremely exciting story, but it is more speculative for sure. Caden looks to me uh, like it has a pretty good uh, 
prospect, a pretty good percentage probability of coming on to something that's very substantial. Uh, and uh, the uh, confidence level that I have, at least, is very high. With Caden, uh, never any guarantees in this business, but certainly on to a very, off to a very good start uh, with the exploration results so far. Cor- Cornerstone Capital, as I mentioned, begins as a sponsor on today, uh, today uh, on this show. Cornerstone has had a couple of phenomenal drill results into a copper-gold porphyry system in Ecuador uh, that is uh, really uh, suggesting they could be on to a major discovery. They, uh, another company is earning and spending the money to earn in, uh, but uh, Cornerstone is, uh, would be left then with an 85% interest in what could be a very substantial deposit. Cornerstone is a prospect generator, so it looks for other people to spend its money to uh, the high-risk capital to, do, uh, to find these deposits. And it looks like they could be on to something really substantial. For example, they intersected 598 meters grading 0.46 copper and 0.18 grams per ton gold, but included within that is a 51-meter intersection of 1.05% copper and 0.85 grams per ton gold. So really a a very exciting story there as well, and I expect to have the Cornerstone Capital CEO on the show sometime in the not-too-distant future. I also expect to talk to the CEO of Ganey Capital, which is a company that is looking uh, to uh, grow organically to start small-scale production in Mexico and grow the company uh, from... uh, organically rather than having to issue shares to to grow. Um, Before I talk about today's show, I would like to share a thought from a listener named Darren. Darren is asking me about a company named Cortez Gold Corp, which he says is uh, following the same path as Dynacor and Ganey Capital. While I really don't know about Cortez, it certainly will be of interest, and I'll look into it and try to share it with my subscribers and perhaps pass it along to uh, listeners of this show as well. But Darren also sent along a question, a a chart, and and some thoughts that he had about that chart, showing the relationship between TLT and gold. Now, TLT is an ETF for a long-dated U.S. Treasury. It's uh, treasuries that I follow fairly closely, and he showed uh, that uh, that when interest rates decline, the price of gold rises, and vice versa. When interest rates rise, gold prices fall. Uh, and so if you think that interest rates may be due for a major rise, as many people believe to be the case, then you might share Darren's concerns that this could be very bearish for gold. Indeed, this is what Gibson's paradox is all about and explains why I think the uh, the, the gold bullion banks are out in the markets uh, selling into the futures markets to keep the quoted price of gold down to keep people disinterested in jumping out of dollars into gold because as the interest rates go down, why to hold gold? Why to hold the paper money. Uh, And so, uh, of course, this is the reason I believe, again, the reason I believe that the gold markets are manipulated. Larry Summers admitted, knowing that this is the case, that the gold market would have to be subdued and held in check if you're going to push interest rates to artificially low levels. But what I would like to say is you can't fool Mother Nature forever. At some point, at some uh, point in time, I believe that suppressing interest rates by pumping huge amounts of money into the system, as has been the case since quantitative easing, uh, if that continues, we're going to be back to where we were in the 1970s. And that is a time that I remember well as a young man. I remember when the last gold bull market took off. At that point in time, in fact, what we saw was interest rates rising along with the gold price. 
the trouble is that the real interest rate was continuing negative or even uh, becoming more negative because the inflation rate was rising much faster than the interest rate. So there is some concern being voiced these days on the part of some Federal Reserve members even that the Fed could actually be falling behind the curve uh, much as it did under Arthur Burns and G. William Miller during the 1970s. I think that's a very good prospect uh, that we could see both interest rates rising and gold taking off as well. Another part of the chart that Darren sent along to me uh, showed a reverse head and shoulders uh, formation, which in my view looks to be very bullish for gold, unlike the one in 2008, 2009, uh, 2010 rather. Uh, it was an upside uh, head and shoulders formation or a bearish head and shoulders formation. Uh, keep in mind that people like um, like Charles Nanner uh, and Dr. Robert McHugh are suggesting that we could have one more uh, substantial decline in the gold price uh, that could test the lows. Uh, but then both men are expecting that by the end of this summer or by the end of September at least that we should start to see the real the next real major move higher in gold, which would go along with the reverse head and shoulders uh, pattern that Darren sent along, in my view. Well, t- uh, with respect to today's show, I've titled the show, Can This Gold Bull Market Exceed the 2,328% Gain of the 1970s? Two professional investors will join me today to talk about gold's prospects as well as the prospects for other markets. One of those is Rick Rule. Last time we talked to Rick, uh, he compared the decline of the price of gold about six months ago or so. We talked to Rick. He could, he really compared that decline to the major uh, correction that took place in the 1970s, a very painful correction that took gold down almost 50%. But that was before gold then rose uh, for that decade at 2,328%. It rose from $35 to $850. So one of the things I want to ask Rick today when we talk to him at about a half past the hour is whether he sees that process. Aspect, again, that we could see something akin to that move percentage-wise in gold today. And joining me in just a couple of minutes will be Bill Lagner, who, along with Kevin Duffy, run the Bearing Fund. And that's a hedge fund that did extremely well in the last uh, stock market crash. In fact, they have done very well since then as well. But they are extremely bearish now in the equity markets, but just as bullish on the gold markets. So we're going to be talking to Bill Lagner in just just a minute or two as soon as we go to break. Uh, I should mention that uh, the second hour of today's show, which normally airs at jtaylormedia.com, will not be aired until tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Um, as a podcast because uh, my travel plans, which took me to Ohio this past weekend uh, to visit my uh, aging and ailing mother, uh, really made it impossible for me to uh, to record everything I needed to record for the second hour of today's show. But I will, uh, again, be posting tomorrow's show, the second hour of tomorrow's show. I expect to be talking to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, as well as David Jensen. Uh, we'll be talking to David about the precious metals markets and, of course, Daniel McAdams about geopolitics from Ron Paul's perspective and Daniel McAdams, McAdams' perspective, which is quite different from what you hear in the mainstream media. Well, we do have to go to break now. Uh, take our first commercial break, but don't go away because when we come back, I'm going to be talking to Bill Lagner, who I think will have some very interesting and insightful things to tell you uh, about the uh, the various markets that we talk about. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Bill Lagner. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Bill Lagner. Uh, Bill has been with me in the past, uh, but it's been a while since we last spoke to him. Uh, I am hoping uh, that uh, we can, we can uh, get Bill's thoughts on the, on the existing market. And, uh, Bill, perhaps uh, if you could do me a favor, take your uh, face away from the telephone just a little bit because you're breathing hard into the phone, and I know you're not excited about me, but maybe you're excited about the gold <laughs> markets. I don't know. We'll, <laughs> we'll get to that. But just okay. a little bit more on Bill. Bill and, and his partner, Kevin Duffy, as I mentioned, mentioned manages the bearings fund uh, which is a true hedge fund uh, by true hedge fund I mean it actually provides a very meaningful and successful means of uh, protection for people who are long the market uh, when the equity markets head in the direction the other direction the southern the southern direction Bill and Kevin created the bearings credit bubble index in 2003 which identified the credit enablers of the biggest private sector bubble over the last 100 years and the bearing fund capitalized on the unwind of that last bubble uh, after the Lehman Brothers default nearly caused the entire Western world's financial system to freeze up. Uh, the Bering Fund reaped huge profits for their investors at a time when most people were seeing their equity values wiped out. Indeed, uh, those that were in the Bering's Fund did quite well and weathered the storm very well. And now the Bering's Fund is anticipating the final and most devastating decline in equities uh, that you or I will ever see in our lifetime. Uh, caused by five years of absolute monetary fiscal insanity. And in a note to be to me earlier, Bill stated, Washington is juggling blowtorches in a pool of gasoline. Wow, how descriptive is that? And I think very, very spot on as well. Uh, and so it, the Bering Fund is now positioned for the third, as I say, the third and final bubble. Uh, this one will be the sovereign stimulus bubble 
Uh, and that, of course, we've seen in spades with QE Infinite coming our way. Huge amounts of money pumped into the system, but not real honest money. Not money that's backed by anything, but money that is created out of thin air uh, through the uh, keystrokes of a computer. So, uh, Bill, I'm really glad that you could join me again. Thank you. No, Jay, thank you for having me on your program. It's really good to talk to you again. Um, can you take a minute to tell us uh, a little bit about the Bearing Bubble Credit Index? What kind of things are in that index, and, and how does it measure? How does it measure up now compared to the uh, prior to the last decline? Yeah, good question. So the last go around, it was more of a private sector credit bubble uh, mania. Of course, you had the uh, assistance of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, which was, you know, part of the necessary uh, glue, if you will, to uh, to keep it all together, you know, underwriting mortgages that um, that shouldn't have been issued, et cetera. But, you know, there were a variety of enablers. Essentially, the entire bubble was built around borrowing short, lending long, and then, you know, creating this kind of artificial bevy of, of collateral instruments. And, you know, the, the rating agencies played a role, the the real estate investment trusts, and, and a lot of these other off-balance sheet, you know, bank-sponsored products and then today you know today and, and it was it was big i mean let's face it we had over 20 trillion dollars of wealth destroyed last go around Th- sure. today the the bubble is really one whereby global central banks and their and their governments are essentially running this experiment and last year for example collectively the governments created another 2.7 trillion in new debt that's just fiscal debt that's just that's just you know uh, uh, taxes, less uh, um, outflows, and you know, 2.7, and then of course they're printing money all over debt. A lot of the debt is short-term debt, so it's constantly being rolled over, and and you have these kind of echo bubbles around the world that are just, I mean, they're fascinating. I mean, look at China for example, right? We had the Chinese response mechanism in 09 where they've created over 10 trillion dollars of new debt since 09. A lot of it has been kind of uh, sponsored through this uh, shadow banking system, real estate-oriented and or state-sponsored entities that are trying to borrow money and roll over debt. So the game, the game is really about rolling over debt, the, the central banks lowering interest rates to try and encourage viable entities to refinance debt, but in actuality not letting a lot of the misallocated capital from the last couple of cycles to really cleanse the system and then get back to some foundation. And so it's taking just an ever more level of, of money printing and debt to try and support these things. And I think what we're now coming to this realization in five years that these things are failing, these various silos they've tried to prop up are failing, and ultimately they're only going to be able to save so much of it. Ultimately, a lot of it's going to burn to the ground. Well, indeed, you make a good point. I mean, the last time there there were sovereign governments yet that could bail out the private institutions, and that's what happened. Well, who's going to bail out the sovereigns the next time, I guess, is a big question. Yeah, and I think I think the central banks indirectly, if you read through the, the rhetoric of late, uh, and even the IMF, the, the, the Lagarde uh, conference in late June was fascinating. It, it uh, also uh, was after a release, I think a 72, 73-page report, where they're talking about, she mentions the word seven times in her presentation and actually talks about scenarios whereby, you know, let's say you own a two-year sovereign debt instrument and they can, the government there can convert it to a 20-year 
uh, sovereign debt instrument, and then, of course, shave the coupon, haircut the coupon, they're already telling you what they're going to do for these various indebted westernized governments, United States included. And so then the question that, you know, Jim Rickards and others will will ask is, you know, what does the reset look like? What kind of a haircut will these various currencies take, let's say, versus gold or some productive asset in society? I mean, that, I think, is the million-dollar question. You know, that's the, that, that's the big question. Of course, uh, while Christine Lagarde and some people, there's some Fed members that are very concerned about the, uh, about the Fed getting behind the curve and, and, and inflation and so forth as well. I mean, there's, there are some, some mainstream people who are raising some issues and, and have voiced some modest concern. But I would say for the most part, Bill, when you turn on CNBC or the major media, what you're hearing is a lot of happy talk. You're hearing a lot of people say, what are you worrying about? They're saying, look, the, uh, uh, the profits are up big. I mean, uh, I was just looking at the S&P uh, 500 and looks to me like since uh, 2000, oh, going back 2009 or so, the profits are up very, very substantially. I'm looking at something like, if these numbers are correct, something like 759 on the S&P 500 to 1138 now or something like that. So corporate profits have, have been very strong, and you'll hear the mainstream people saying this is why the equity market is justifiably where it is now. But I guess you don't agree. Tell us why. Well, I think, look, I think this is just another example of how, you know, and you had David Stockman on your program recently. Yep. We've learned nothing in five years. I mean, if you look at the elements that built – the last bubble, you know, you alluded to the credit bubble index that we created. The there were probably at, at the last stages going into 06, 07, the bulk of the corporate profits were just being generated by by easy credit. You know, the the financial profits as a percentage of total S and P profits, I think they peaked at like 42, 43 percent. Okay, and then you looked at the the collapse. In the, in the structured investment vehicles and these off-balance sheet silos and experiments, when it collapsed, corporate profits went down 90%. Well, mm. that happened in 1929, right? I mean, you and I know the history of, of the crash in 1920. Let's fast forward to today. Well, a lot of the corporate profits today are finance-driven again. Of course, this is a byproduct of the the American Recovery Reinvestment Act, stimulus, student loans that are not going to get paid back. And so what's happened of late, Jay? Well, you've had corporate profits. If you strip out stock buybacks and things like one-time expenses and the types of very creative accounting going on, corporate profits have been declining. Non-financial corporate profits have actually declined for the last five quarters. Wow. Okay, so corporate profits, in fact, you go to the Federal Reserve's website, and they actually have a graph there that shows you the profit decline, and it's, it's a swan dive. And so yeah. people will say, well, wait a minute, you know, the, the analysts and advisors are telling me that corporate profits are up. A lot of this is coming from, you know, the, the non-GAAP accounting that's going on, the finance-driven profits. But here's a couple statistics that I wanted to bring to your guests today. So Q2 buybacks, these are the stock buybacks, which last year topped $500 billion, which was insane thanks to low interest rates. They were actually down 20% versus Q1 buybacks. Okay, mm. so what what has been driving the last part of this bull market? A lot of it has been driven by stock, you know, record stock buybacks. And actually, stock buybacks are now lower than they were in Q3 of, of last year. And yet, the stock market is up 24% in the last nine months, nine and a half months. And so, debt levels are up 10% year over year, but they've actually flattened out quarter over quarter. So corporate debt issuance is beginning to slow. 
um, buybacks are clearly slowing, and then your guests would say, well, what's driving this? You know, why can't the stock market go down every time it drops 3%, 4%? People are buying the dip. We would, you know, we would say that a lot of this is just being driven by speculation. Um, there is some retail money making its way into the market, but I think the professional speculator is the one kind of playing the game here, algorithmic high-frequency trading-type programs, you know, funds of that nature. Nobody wants to leave the casino. They just rotate from, from table to table. But, um, you know, people don't even understand that 25% of all share buybacks, for example, the last four years were used for stock option issuance. So they're just, they're just taking off the, uh, the stock um, issuance that's been uh, granted an option. So, you know, we think that, you know, we are clearly the real economy is continuing to contract. The speculator economy can, does not want to leave the casino. And at some point, I think we mentioned this last go around, that that divergence between the real economy and the kind of the asset economy or the casino economy, that gap closed. It could close in a crash or it could be more of a bleed. But, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to anyone that understands basic mathematics that that, that gap will close. All right. So you're expecting, uh, you're expecting prices, equity prices to come down substantially, I gather, uh, mm-hmm. over either quickly or not so quickly. Uh, but you are positioning, you and, and Kevin are positioning your fund uh, for that event, I guess, right? Well, yes, we, we believe that it's really unfinished business. So whereas there was an incredible opportunity in 08 and 09 to try and, you know, basically right the ship, let a lot of things fail, let a lot of these financial experiments, these off-balance sheet, you know, shadow bank, whatever you want to reference them as, experiments just purge from the system, and then capital begins to get allocated more prudently, and real wealth is created once again. Of course, the central banks and their respective governments did not allow that to happen. And so we think that the earnings in many cases are more inflated than the 07 uh, peak in corporate earnings. And then we think that this go-around, this kind of unwind, uh, that the central banks, uh, I think Jim Rickard said it best, they're out of ammunition. I mean, the central banks have already taken interest rates to zero, negative in certain countries. And so they're really out of ammunition. They, they are trying to keep the banks liquid, obviously. But, um, you know, I think the real economy, you know, the consumer, the ecosystem, they are, they're not trusting what they see. So they're trying to hoard capital and, and prepare. Mm-hmm. And so as we go through this last unwind, we think actually the governments will be forced to do um, some of the right things and, and let a lot of things fail. And that, that kind of resetting of currencies, uh, resetting of the, the foundation, if you will, that's going to be wildly disruptive to economic activity and to corporate profitability. What would force the governments to, uh, to, to acknowledge that Mother Nature has won? What would force them? Would it, would it, could it be a loss of confidence in the currency or run out of the a run out of the dollar into gold or, or what might happen? Because what we have, clearly, there's still confidence in the system because you see, uh, you know, the flight to uh, the flight to safety, quote-unquote, is into the U.S. Treasuries, a little bit into gold, perhaps, but for the most part, it goes into U.S. Treasuries. What would cause that to change, Bill? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, several items. You mentioned one. Gold, you know, we own a lot of gold. We own gold, some of the larger and middle-sized gold miners. Um, gold will just, as, you know, as distrust grows around the world, uh, gold just uh, will become the de facto 
currency of choice, I think, for a lot of people around the world. And secondly, I think the citizens, if you look at some of the uh, voting activity and, and the backlash from citizens around the world, uh, people they're tired of the bailouts. They're tired of the, the, the preferential treatment given to too big to fail banks. They're tired of fractional reserve lending. Um, look at the proliferation of, of virtual currency coin. I mean, that really is just kind of a, is the world basically saying we're tired of a fiat system, even though mm-hmm. the virtual currency world has its own challenges because it's not money. Um, you know, as far as moving through the ecosystem, people are, are deciding to use that versus using fiat. So there's a number of, of events actually crystallizing here. And I think for your listeners, it's probably going to be a series of events that force the government to uh, allow, they're going to have to allow some things to fail this go around. And, and if they don't, if they try and just continue to bail everything out, then there will be a complete loss of the currency and the currency will, will unravel. With just a couple of minutes left, uh, Bill, uh, I'm not sure if you answered this question or not. I, I can't remember here now. Bearing, the Bearing Bubble Credit Index, how does that compare, um, higher or lower? Or is it, how does it compare with the peak before the last crash? Yeah, the components, the components would actually be a little different because some of the sub-indices uh, are no longer with us. I mean, a lot of these mortgage insurers, for example, have gone out business. Um, Fannie and Freddie, they are really just another part of the government. So if you were to kind of measure government credit issuance, sovereign issuance, um, then there's no doubt that the credit bubble index, because essentially we've, we've taken private sector credit and we've moved it to the public balance sheet, you know, globally, mm-hmm. not just here. So you, clearly you're at, you're at a new high because you've, you've created, what, $40 trillion of just new debt, not all of it's sovereign but quite a bit of debt since the 2009 crisis, a lot of that being China, the U.S., of course, uh, Japan. But, you know, I would say that it's, you know, interest rates at, at or close to zero uh, clearly don't work. And I think the central bankers, one by one, are, are indirectly referencing that point. Now, you know, what do they do? You know, what is the response mechanism during the next series of, of crises, Jay. I mean, we can only we can speculate at this point, but yeah. I think owning gold, owning gold miners that have costs under control, that is a good place to have uh, some of your assets. And I think, look, you could buy insurance. The beauty of of you know whether it's something like what we do or, or other funds like ours, you're able to buy insurance right now on risk assets, and it's dirt cheap, and no right. one's buying insurance. I mean, we've got a Category Five hurricane off the coast of Florida. We could still call the insurance company, and they will underwrite our multi-million-dollar home, and it's cheap. And yet, mm-hmm. people still don't want to buy the insurance. Well, they don't because I think the propaganda machine is working very, very well. And, uh, you know, Gibson's paradox, uh, Lawrence Summers understood it. In fact, it was just, uh, we're out of time. Unfortunately, maybe you can talk to Rick Rule about this. But certainly the, uh, the notion that, um, you can suppress interest rates without problems. And, and, uh, Lawrence Summers understood very well that if you did that, you're going to have to control the gold price somehow because if you press interest rates down, the gold price is going to rise dramatically. Well, it uh, certainly, hasn't done so in the last couple of years, although I think we're still in a secular bull market. Uh, in closing, would you agree with that? I would completely agree with that. It's all about trust, and uh, I think people globally are losing trust in the system just because of the various, as I mentioned earlier, the various 
insane policy decisions, fiscal and monetary, taken by westernized governments the last five years. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, out of time, uh, Bill, thanks for joining me today on on short notice. It's really good to have you and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Absolutely, Jay. You have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to take a commercial break, and when we come back, we'll be with Rick Rule. Uh, I'm sure you'll want to stick around and hear what Rick has to say. Doug Casey's called him uh, the best investment advisor in the world, so uh, you might want to hear what this man has to say. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Rick Rule. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Rick Rule. He's the chairman and founder of Global Resources Investments, LP, and his firm has been successfully involved in the natural resources industry investing on a worldwide basis for well, quite a while now. Uh, Rick has uh, Rick and his firm believe that the resource industry investor and speculator are at the dawn of the greatest speculative epoch of his career, and that's saying something because uh, as uh, your host, uh, Rick and I have been have had many uh, revolutions around the sun, and uh, and so uh, yes, there's uh, we've we've lived through a lot of different cycles. So for Rick to say that, I think it's really uh, really something. Today uh, he is part of the uh, Toronto-based Sprott uh, Group. Rick manages close to a billion dollars focused on the mining sector through investment partnerships and investment management firm and his brokerage firm. And his knowledge and exploration acumen makes him 
a sought-after speaker for sure. I can tell you as a person who's gone to many of the conferences where Rick has spoken, he is always uh, one of the uh, keynote speakers, uh, whether he's labeled as such or not. The crowds gather around him because he uh, he truly does have uh, unmatched experience and reputation and knowledge. Uh, indeed, this, his uh, friend and uh, uh, also who's been on this show, uh, investment guru Doug Casey, has said uh, on this show that there's no one in the world who is better uh, at investing and giving investment advice than Rick Rule. So we are indeed very fortunate to have Rick with us once again. Thanks for joining me, Rick. Jay, thanks for having me. Your intelligent questions always make this show a pleasure. Oh, well, I, you know, intelligent questions, uh, if, if we get intelligent answers, the questions look qu- intelligent. Otherwise, uh, not so much. Uh, the global economy r- narrowly escaped what my good friend Ian Gordon uh, thought was the beginning of a Kondratiev winter. And what Robert Prechter said on the show, uh, he was predicting the start of a new dark age. I mean, so, so much gloom, so much pessimism. And we have so many people on this show, maybe because gold bugs tend to be pessimists. But you are an optimistic fellow, Rick. It's seems to me. I, I hope you can share some of that optimism with us today. Now, have all the Keynesians who have shaped policy around the world, I mean, they, they, they seem to think we have nothing to worry about. Are, are you optimistic because you're a Keynesian? Uh, <laughs> Joe, I'm a, I'm a credit analyst, uh, which is a, a nice name for a, a loan shark, not an economist. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic uh, because I have somehow managed to muddle through uh, times that seem to me equally catastrophic for this. I'm thinking about the late 60s and early 70s mm-hmm. when I came of age in finance. I'm also optimistic because the ascent of man is the longest unbroken bull market in history. And left to their own devices, uh, people can probably fix uh, almost any error of their own making. If uh, people were inclined in the United States to to fix the fiscal problems as opposed to digging themselves in a deeper hole, I suspect that we could be at a difficulty in a generation. As an example, the off-balance sheet liabilities, which I've described on your show uh, with so much trauma, could be obviated simply by repudiating them. They could tell the old codgers like you and me, yeah, we promised you Social Security, we promised you Medicare, but we lied. Too bad, so sad, reset. That would make 65 or $70 trillion non-balance sheet liabilities go away. Will that happen? Probably not in so many words, but I'm still, uh, at the heart of it, an optimist. Which doesn't, by the way, Jay, make me like precious metals any less. It makes me like them more. All right, so uh, so that I guess you distinguish yourself uh, from the Keynesians who hate precious metals and love more government and love more printing press money. Uh, you know, Bill Lagner told us just a few minutes ago that profits from non-financial companies after uh, after taxes with inventory valuation adjustment. Anyways, if you look at profits, uh, for corporate profits, from a perspective of uh, you know after you do, after you factor taxes out and uh, capital cost and so on and so forth, the, the Bill's description of, of corporate profits. In fact, I'm looking at a chart from the Federal Reserve that shows a plunge in corporate profits after tax and inventory valuation adjustment and capital consumption adjustment. That's just plunging below. In fact, contracting very substantially. That's not what we're hearing. 
the uh, mainstream press is telling us that we're having that the stock market is re- reaching new highs for good reasons because profits are very strong. And indeed, I think I read a recent interview that you did in which you were championing the balance sheets of, of uh, American corporations. They were doing very, very well. Uh, but so, are you are you really bullish on the equity markets and on American business at this point, Rick? Um. No and yes, meaning uh, I think that U.S. equity markets are becoming overextended. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, championing the American business sector probably, although the remarks that I made uh, that you read referred really to the very largest industrial companies in the United States represented mm-hmm. by the uh, S&P, where I was attracted to their balance sheets, in particular attracted to the balance sheets that they're resorting to trickery in the way, in the same fashion that they used to. Yeah. Except for that the trickery now involves hiding cash in foreign subsidiaries. <laughs> <laughs> Not making themselves look less strong than they actually are, probably to avoid having to distribute that cash to its rightful owners. Yeah. Uh, uh, I agree with the thrust of what you're saying in the sense that the recovery that the United States is alleged to be undergoing feels to me like a financial recovery. It feels to me like a response to low interest rates and a response to liquidity. What we aren't seeing is uh, a recovery in investments, mm-hmm. uh, in capital good investments, uh, investments in the type of capital tools that allow worker utility and hence real, util- real worker wages to increase. Mm-hmm. And we aren't seeing an increase in consumption in consumer durables. White right. goods and automobiles. Uh, the stage is set for that recovery if worker incomes would ever increase simply because the median age of the white goods inventory and the autos inventory in the United States is at record levels. But I think that workers aren't feeling confident for good reason. Uh, their incomes have been stagnant for mm-hmm. a long, long, long time as a consequence, I think, of the corporate sector's nervousness about the political direction of America and the state of the U.S. economy, and hence their unwillingness to make uh, investments in uh, property, plant, and equipment mm-hmm. that would position them for a boom that they themselves do not see in the offing. Yeah, because they don't see the retail, uh, the common folks having the wherewithal to spend. And, and so the, uh, to use a Keynesian term, I guess, the demand side of the economy is not very strong. I mean, just people don't have money. They don't have disposable purchasing power as they once had, the common folks. Particularly in the traditional sense of that word. Um, I have been very fortunate in that so many of my clients and so many of my friends have been in a position personally where either through access to technology or some other fashion, they are part of that subset of Americans uh, Robert Reich called them utility, uh, uh, pardon me, symbolic workers mm-hmm. that are able to add substantial utility to other people through their efforts mm-hmm. and hence have done very well. We have a bifurcating economy, it would right. seem to be in the United States, mm-hmm. where the traditional worker that has enjoyed utilizing capital built up by the innovative American industry ha- had seen real wages rise for many years. Uh, the, ironically, the uh, and I'm interpreting here, the advent of the welfare state uh, began to uh, decrease the effectiveness of the real economic model 20 or 30 years ago. And as a consequence of constant efforts made to um, help 
the workers, the workers' lot seems to have been uh, seriously compromised. Yeah. Well, indeed, and I, I might just mention, uh, Rick, that uh, the statistics that Bill Lagner mentioned earlier uh, before you came on the show and the one I just noted, uh, the corporate profits uh, from the Federal Reserve, excluded the financial sector. So those were non-financial uh, corporations that are seeing a, a really sharp nosedive in, in profits into negative territory after you take those factors out right from the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Well, you know, some Federal Reserve members have been expressing some concern uh, that the Fed could be behind the curve in inflation. And certainly you and I remember the 1970s with G. William Miller and Arthur Burns before him, how they were printing money like mad. And we started to see, uh, you know, the, the interest rates were rising, but inflation was rising even faster. Do you see prospects of that happening? I do, Jay. Again, I'm no economist, and I, I hate to keep making apologies for that. I'm not sure it's anything to apologize for. I don't know um, either. I think, uh, honestly, I, I like to say those with PhDs behind their names from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale are at a disadvantage in understanding the markets, I think. So I, I'm not, I wouldn't, if I had uh, who some of the most highly esteemed uh, economists, uh, the one there at the New York Times, I think I would probably just shut the, shut the radio off or shut him off. But, uh, well, so so I, go I, ahead. Not, you don't have to apologize on this show for not being an economist. You're probably a better economist than, than those that claim they are economists. I'm just not sure where these guys shop. Uh, The idea that the CPI uh, represents uh, a basket of goods and services that I consume uh, seems to me very odd. I like to point out that the last couple of years, every day on my way to my office in California, uh, I pass a Motel 6. Mm -hmm. And the sign variously describes the room price at Motel 6 uh, for between $59 and $109, depending on occupancy. Mm -hmm. Now, 30 years ago, this was called Motel 6 because a room there cost $6. Now it costs $60. (laughs) Your listeners need to consider, Jay, whether or not the utility of a room at Motel 6 has increased tenfold over 30 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, After all, I think the sheets are the same sheets. Or whether the purchasing power of the denominator has declined by 90% over that period of time. I would suspect that we're dealing with the latter. Uh, I would also question the CPI from a much more fundamental viewpoint in terms of as a measure of the cost of living. And that is, Jay, that the CPI doesn't include tax. Now, if they didn't charge me tax, I wouldn't complain quite so much about the index. But the idea that my cost of living is increasing at 2.6 or 2.7 a year or 2.3, whatever their number is, is simply fallacious. Mm -hmm. It's simply fallacious. Uh, That isn't what's happening. At the same time, uh, they, and by they I specifically mean the the big thinkers and Mm -hmm. the Fed, have artificially deprived, uh, pardon me, artificially manipulated interest rates lower so that my ability to uh, affect my purchases of those goods and services is constrained because the rewards to the savings that I've done for 40 or so years has been depressed. So sure. I, I would I would argue very strenuously that on both sides of their ledger, ledger uh, that they are acting in ways that are antithetical, certainly to me, but also I would suspect to the majority of productive Americans. I would think so. In fact, Rick, I know uh, I'm quite sure that you've been much more successful than the average person in, uh, in investing, and you've done that uh, despite the fact that you can't get 
uh, reasonable or a market-driven rate uh, for on your savings. And in fact, uh, orchestrated theft by the Federal Reserve, by the government, to take from the savers and give to those who dissave, uh, and uh, encourages people really to play what I think is more of a, a casino in the equity market, and uh, you know, looking for ways to go out in the risk curve and find ways to try to find a way to, to, to make up for those lost rates, which is really part of the malinvestment that Austrians understand. But if, if rates are, if, so if inflation could rise, I guess you and I are seeing that despite the fact that the demand side of the economy is very, very weak, then shouldn't we somewhere along the way uh, see a rise in uh, interest rates? I think we should anyway, because clearly the, C, the, the government, uh, the, the Federal Reserve is suppressing the interest rates. But what, are, what is your outlook on rates? Because so many of my friends have lost money betting against a turn in the long-dated treasuries. What are your forecasts for the interest rates, if you have one? Well, I, I am, uh, first of all, one of those pre- friends who has lost, as you suggest. <laughs> uh, so perhaps my remarks are yes less useful than they would be if I okay. <laughs> if I had a decent track record. Um, I will say that I am surprised by their continuing and by they I mean the Fed's continuing ability to depress interest rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am surprised that the market allows them to get away with counterfeiting, which is of course what quantitative easing is. Uh, I am surprised with the level of confidence that exists in financial markets, and I'm surprised by the voter support on both sides of the aisle uh, for manipulating the economy in the fashion that it has been manipulated. The idea that people cheer uh, tapering, that is, the reduction in the amount of quantitative easing, or put differently, uh, a reduction in the amount of counterfeiting that takes place in society from whatever it was, $100 billion a month to $30 billion a month, is astonishing to me. What we're, what we're saying is that there is a correct level of currency debasement in the economy, which doesn't make me feel more confident. Yeah. But for people who look at things differently than I do, and I think that includes most of the people in the financial services industry in the United States, liquidity, that is the appearance of short-term cash in the system is such a spectacular lubricant that uh, people have come to believe that liquidity itself is a substitute for solvency. I don't Mm -hmm. happen to share that opinion, which is why I have less faith in the current system than most mainstream analysts would. My Mm -hmm. suspicion is that I will be right. My hope is, of course, that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Sure. No, it, it, it certainly makes sense. Well, you know, you mentioned the word manipulation a few times, Rick, and, and Lawrence Summers clearly understood that if interest rates were suppressed, uh, the general tendency for gold would be to rise, and therefore the need to, according to the Gadup folks, the need to somehow suppress or discourage people from buying gold. Uh, and it seems to me we see massive smackdowns in the gold price at certain times when you'd expect gold should start to rise on uh, on global issue, uh, international terrorist, terrorism or global issues of uh, conflict or economic bad news and so forth. But quite often it's exactly the opposite, and massive amounts of futures markets uh, selling that comes out. Do you, uh, do you subscribe to the notion that uh, within certain limits there may be some games played in terms of taming the gold price? I'm of mixed minds about that, Jay. I am not, by temperament, a conspiratorialist. Uh, I usually find other simpler explanations 
mm-hmm. to account for the fact that I'm occasionally wrong with regards to my predictions. Yeah. I will say that I am very impressed with the amount of physical data at the GATA site. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say further that uh, my boss, Eric Sprott, uh, firmly believes in manipulation. And I work at a place called Sprott. He doesn't work at a place called Rule. He's been right more <laughs> often than I have. Um, further, I will concede that the selling of very large quantities of physical gold and silver at periods of time in the trading day, when the volume is uh, very thin, would suggest that the seller is not looking for an economic return on his or her metal, mm-hmm. but is rather trying to affect the actions of other market participants. Mm-hmm. I still yeah. have a difficult time personally believing that there's been an ongoing 20- or 30-year conspiracy yeah. uh, amongst the government and the Council on Foreign Relations and the great big banks and all that kind of stuff. I yeah. have a really difficult time for that. But certainly uh, our all major financial markets manipulated from time to time? Absolutely. If they could and did manipulate LIBOR, uh, periodic manipulation of markets like the gold and silver market uh, would and should be very, very easy targets. Rick, we're going to run out of time way too soon, so i gotta, I got to ask you while we're on the topic of gold, uh, what is your outlook for gold in spite, of the, in spite of the games that might be played? Well, it seems to me that you measure gold against anti-gold, which is the U.S. 10-year treasury from my point of view. The value proposition offered up by anti-gold is that they absolutely positively guarantee to pay you 2.7% compounded over 10 years (laughs) in a currency where your purchasing power is devalued by my measure about 5% a year, which is a different way of saying they absolutely positively guarantee to strip 40% of your wealth. If I had the choice... Uh, between gold, which has traditionally, albeit been volatile, but held its value, against an instrument, never mind uh, discussions about the solvency of the issuer, uh, an instrument that promises to strip me of 40% of my purchasing power over 10 years, it would seem to me that the relative direction between those two instruments would be very, very clear. Mm -hmm. To make it easier for your subscribers to understand, I would much rather be long gold than the 10-year treasury. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the last time we talked to you, you were very bullish on platinum and palladium. Uh, you still still feel the same way? Well, it's kind of you to pick out one of my picks that's worked well, uh, Jay. <laughs> uh, and I am still very bullish on platinum and palladium, and for the same reasons that existed in your interview. They are not faith-based investments like gold or silver. You can own them for good old-fashioned supply and demand reasons, the way that you would invest in copper or agricultural minerals or any other type of commodities. Uh, The fact is that it costs the industry worldwide more to make the stuff than they get for selling it. At the same time, the utility of those metals to consumers on a global basis, particularly in the form of catalytic converters, is very high. I believe the price must go up. I believe the price can go up. I believe that something that must happen and can happen will happen as it has been happening. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, David Jensen, who we have on this show frequently, uh, watches the uh, the price for the physical platinum and platinum, and he's noting that the futures markets 
uh, going out into the future, uh, the prices are much lower than the physical markets the demand, which I guess is, is fairly common when you're running into shortages. And of course, we've had this, uh, this uh, the strike in South Africa, which accounts for a great deal of the, of the tightness in the market right now, I suppose. But also, there's been rumors that Russia was going to be buying some of the platinum or platinum, I think, perhaps off the markets. Do you see a long-term uh, shortage, a long-term issue, or do you think that uh, there will be less of this pretty soon if we, uh, you know, once the South Africans go back to work? Uh, the strike in South Africa took about 600,000 ounces of this year's production out of production and used up uh, uh, fabricating inventories that existed. This exacerbates a problem which I think will really rear its ugly head in two or two and a half years. Looking further out, like 10 years out, um, I I believe that uh, markets will take care of the problem, uh, assuming that nobody else intervenes. Uh, at a market clearing price in the range of $2,500 platinum, uh, a little less than a double from today's prices, uh, we could produce all of the platinum that we needed in the foreseeable future. It's just that we can't do that at $1,500, $1,400 or $1,500 an ounce. I would suspect that the market will take care of the shortage given the extraordinary utility that platinum has. All right. Thank you very much, Rick. Unfortunately, we're out of time. My engineer is saying i got to shut my mouth, so that's it for today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. It's always a pleasure talking with you, so thanks, Rick, and I hope to have you back again sometime soon. Thanks for the opportunity, Jay. Thank you very much. Well, folks, uh, keep in mind that tomorrow, jtaylormedia.com, we will be talking to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity and David Jensen also uh, talking about precious metals and the futures markets and the physical markets. Uh, I do want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. And so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 